This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to our sermon text this morning. It is Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, we'll be looking at verses 13 through 17. Matthew 3, 13 through 17, we're continuing a series of studies in the Gospel of Matthew. Today we're looking at this passage that concerns the baptism of our Lord. Hear the word of God. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity early on this first day of the week to meet together, to worship you, to to study your word together. And now, Father, we pray that you would equip us and feed us and encourage us from your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It was an ancient expectation in C.S. Lewis's imaginary world, Narnia. It was an ancient expectation that the day would come when four, two sons of Adam, two daughters of Eve, would come and sit on the four thrones at Caer Paravel. Ancient. And over the years, for many people, it had become uh, merely a prophecy to be forgotten. For some, it was merely old mythology, and there were a few for whom it was a viable hope. Well, as we come to this passage in Matthew's Gospel, I imagine that the hearts of the people in Israel were in a very similar state to those of the citizens of Narnia. They knew the ancient prophecies. They knew the promise that had been made. But it was a very, very long time ago. In fact, it had been 400 years since a prophet had come bearing the words, Thus says the Lord. Think of it in our terms. That would be going back to the days of Queen Elizabeth, to the days of Shakespeare. We know they're real, but they seem very distant and in many ways 
irrelevant. And so it was for many of the Israelites in the days of John. There were those for whom the coming Messiah was a viable hope. But in many ways, Israel had become secular. Over the years of silence from the Lord, people had gone about their lives, building their own worlds, following their own priorities. Oh, yes, they knew the promises, but they seemed to have very little to do with their daily life. And then there was a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. After all of those years, another voice calling out, thus says the Lord. A word from God had come again. And John the Baptist was calling people to turn from their sins, to confess them, and to undergo this rite of baptism as an indication of their repentance, as an expression of the cleansing that came by the grace of God to those who repented of their sins. And he was tilling the hard soil of the people's hearts to prepare the way for the Messiah because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, John's ministry was one of preparation, and it reaches its climax in the passage that we have here before us. We read in verse 13, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Now, the last time we heard of Jesus was back in chapter 2, when he and his family left Egypt, returned uh, to Israel, but settled in Galilee, settled in the north in the town called Nazareth. And we really hear nothing about Jesus, and certainly not in Matthew's gospel, until we come here to verse 13, when Jesus comes to be baptized. In fact, the gospels are pretty much silent on Jesus' life between all of the excitement and drama of his birth until the time of his baptism and the beginning of his public ministry. Uh, We do have the account uh, recorded for us of Jesus as about a 12-year-old in the temple, confounding with his knowledge the religious leaders and his parents anxiously looking for them after they had set out for home, having to return to go and find him. But other than that, we know nothing of Jesus' upbringing, of his childhood, of his what we would call his teen years, his early adult life. We suspect he lived quietly in Nazareth. We suspect that he began to learn and ply his trade as a carpenter there in Nazareth. But the Bible's quiet, certainly from that time when he was 12 years old until the beginning of his public ministry here. We don't know how Jesus heard of John. We don't know what led to his coming, and we only read that he did. He came from the north in Galilee down to the south to the Jordan River to John to be baptized by him. Now, verse 14 tells us, John would have prevented him. As one translation says, John tried to talk him out of it, saying, I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? John is taken aback as this one for whom he was the forerunner came to him to receive this baptism. John is taken aback on a couple of fronts. One, he says, I need to be baptized by you. It's not just, you know, I should be baptized by you. I need this. I need what you offer. John was a humble man. John had a keen sense of his own sinfulness, of his own inadequacy. 
and certainly felt all the more keenly as any minister of Christ has ever felt it in carrying out this work of calling others to repentance. We can only imagine that there was a twinge of guilt in his own heart, recognizing that daily he himself needed the very cleansing that his baptism expressed for others. And so when his cousin, Jesus, the Messiah himself, comes to John, we don't know all that John knew about him. In fact, the Gospel of John seems to indicate he really didn't know for sure that Jesus was in fact the Messiah until the Spirit came down on him. He certainly knew that Jesus should be ministering to him and not he to Jesus. And he says, you come to me. But Jesus answers him in verse 15. Let it be so now. That word now is curious. Is it Jesus saying, go ahead and do it? Is Jesus saying, let's do this now, do this for this one time? I think there is something in what Jesus says when he says now that acknowledges the propriety of John's objection. That acknowledges that John does in fact have a point that it's Jesus who should be baptizing, who should be cleansing John and not John baptizing Jesus, Jesus says, let it be so now, for it is necessary to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Now, there is in this, although it's not explicitly stated, certainly on John's part, a recognition of his own defilement, a recognition of his own lack of uh, qualification to baptize Jesus. But there's also, while not stated, implicit in that, a recognition of Jesus' own sinlessness. It's interesting. I was looking at a survey uh, done of just different questions, and one of the indicators that has gone up is the number of people surveyed, even professing Christians, who think that Jesus, in fact, was a sinner. That's astonishing. Who, who would deny that Jesus was, in fact, sinless in his life. Now, John implicitly is acknowledging the sinlessness, certainly the superiority, but even the sinlessness of Jesus. And the Bible certainly teaches that. You know the verse from Hebrews, he was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Very dramatically, Jesus could look at his opponents, those who were willing to dig up the dirt on him, and say, which of you can prove me guilty of sin? You know how many answers he got? None. How about a presidential candidate today who challenged his opponents to say, I dare you, I, I challenge you to find anything on me. Well, that's their worst nightmare, that their skeletons will come out of the closet and haunt them, right? Well, Jesus could say to those who would later put him to death, I challenge you to find me guilty of wrongdoing. Couldn't do it. At least not on the basis of God's true law. This is an acknowledgement of Jesus' sinlessness. And in fact, it's necessary for our salvation that Jesus should be sinless. So Jesus answered him, let it be so now. Do it this once. Just do what I'm telling you. He doesn't explain. He just basically tells him, do it. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Why? What does it mean 
to fulfill all righteousness. Some have suggested that Jesus saw this as obedience to a command, but in fact there's no commandment in the Old Testament that commands us to be baptized. It was not some point of specific obedience to any given commandment in the Old Testament to undergo baptism as such. And Jesus wasn't doing that. You say, well, it's part of Jesus fulfilling the entirety of the law, but there again, it's hard to see how John's act of baptism is in any way a fulfillment of even the whole law of the Old Testament. What was Jesus saying when he said it is fitting for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness? Well, it may be, given that word fulfill, which is a favorite of Matthew's, that he may have had a particular prophecy in mind, not so much a fulfillment of commandment, but the idea of Jesus as the fulfillment of righteousness. We look back at Isaiah 53, 11. It says, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. This is a fulfillment of righteousness in a more general sense. That Jesus here is presenting himself as that righteous yet suffering servant of the Lord who would bring righteousness to his people. For Jesus to undergo baptism is for Jesus to identify himself with his sinful people. We said last time that Jesus was in some ways an, an embodiment of Israel itself. Coming out of Egypt, out of Egypt I called my son. And just as in the Old Testament, Israel was brought out of Egypt. So Jesus was in Egypt and returned back to the promised land out of Egypt. And as the embodiment of Israel and its need of cleansing, Jesus was identifying with Israel. But Jesus was placing himself in the sinner's place. Jesus was identifying himself with the sinner. Though Jesus himself had never sinned. Never a sin of commission, doing what he shouldn't have done. Never a sin of omission, failing to do what he should have done. Jesus steps into the sinner's place, into your place, into my place. Acknowledging our need of cleansing. And therefore submitting to this baptism of John. Jesus had no sin for which he needed to repent. But you and I and all of his people do. And Jesus stands with us in that place and submits to this baptism of repentance. And so he says, it is fitting for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. To be the suffering servant who suffers for his people. And so John, on that basis, consents. Uh, he doesn't really explain, but Jesus is the superior. Jesus is the one whose sandals he is not fit to carry. So when Jesus says, do it, John says, yes, sir. And he baptizes him. Now, something very interesting happens upon Jesus' baptism. In fact, John, uh, Matthew doesn't even record the baptism itself. He doesn't describe the baptism. He, he simply acknowledges it, that it happened, verse 16, when Jesus was baptized. Immediately, he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove 
and coming to rest on him. After the baptism, Jesus comes up from the water and immediately we read the heavens were opened, which again is is language from the Old Testament indicating a revelation from God, indicating the divine presence, divine activity. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Now, that's a curious event to take place. What is the what is the meaning of that? Well, first of all, it has the idea of ordination. This was the coming of the Holy Spirit upon Jesus, symbolizing his being set apart for the ministry he was about to pursue. Now, in the Old Testament, you're certainly familiar with anointings. The pouring of oil on the head of someone, anointing him to become the king or to be the king, or anointings on someone in order to set him apart for the work of prophecy, becoming a prophet. Well, what the oil represented was God setting that person apart, the, the spirit. And sometimes the Old Testament would speak of the spirit coming upon someone to empower him for the work that God had called him to do. Well, here we skip the oil and just see the Spirit coming down. So this was Jesus' ordination, if you will. It was his anointing. It was his being set apart publicly by the Father for the ministry he was about to begin. But it was also an empowering. Now, if you're thinking this early in the morning, you're going to say, now, wait a minute. Jesus was was God. What need did he have of any more power than he already had? Well, Jesus was God, and as such, he never ceased to be omnipotent, never ceased to have all power as God. But Jesus now also is a man. He has a human body. He's taken to himself a human nature. And the startling thing is this. Although there were indications, obviously, of Jesus' divine power in his ministry, miracles he did, knowledge that he had that would be impossible, humanly speaking. Jesus lived out his life to this point, and certainly through his ministry, and Jesus carried out the work that he did by two resources that are available to us. He did this in his human nature, in his human body. One is the Word of God. As we'll see in, in chapter 4, the word was very important to Jesus in his ministry. The other was the Holy Spirit of God. The Spirit who had come upon him now in his human nature and human flesh to carry out this ministry. The Spirit by which he prayed to his heavenly Father. And so the Spirit coming upon Jesus is an indication of his being set apart for this work. It is an indication of his being empowered for this work. But why a dove? Did you ever stop to ask that question? Why was the Holy Spirit symbolized as a dove? Matthew's language is a little ambiguous. Like a dove, was it a dove or something that merely reminded one of a dove? He doesn't say, but we do read in one of the other Gospels that he, he came bodily as a dove. And so to all indications, this was a dove coming down upon Jesus. There's a lot of speculation about the meaning of it. We think of a dove, we think of peace. And there may be something to that, particularly the dove related to uh, Noah. Some have suggested that there's a connection here with uh, Genesis 1, verse 2, where the Spirit was, was moving over the surface of the water. And so you have creation, and now you have the new creation. It's all nice, but Genesis 1 and 2 says nothing about a dove. 
Um, even in New Testament days, the dove was seen as a symbol of virtue, as a symbol of gentleness. Certainly those would be fitting for the ministry of our Lord. Sometimes the dove was seen as a symbol of Israel. In Hosea, Ephraim is referred to as a dove, although not in a particularly flattering way. And again, it may be a reference to Jesus as the personification of all Israel itself, a representative, the second Adam. Hard to be too dogmatic about it, but certainly the image was that of a dove coming down and, and may well be an indication of Jesus as the, the embodiment of Israel, certainly pointing to his, his virtue, his uh, purity, his sinlessness. Well, then verse 17, not only do you see the Spirit come down upon him like a dove, but we hear, behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Now, something significant. Jesus, Holy Spirit, the Father, the voice from heaven. It's worth noting that you have a very strong Trinitarian reference here in the baptism of Jesus. And in Matthew's case, Jesus' public ministry begins with a declaration of the Trinity, not using that term, but the three members of the Trinity here. And in Matthew 28, it ends by naming the Trinity, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, right? The great commission with which Matthew's gospel ends. So a Trinitarian reference. But here the Father says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. The word beloved certainly expresses the Father's affection for his Son. It might bring back echoes from Genesis 22 where God tells Abraham to take his Son, his only Son, the Son whom he Loves Well, Jesus is the beloved Son of the Father. He says, with him I am well pleased, expressing his pleasure, his delight in his Son here as he begins his public ministry, as he's been ordained to his ministry, so to speak. It's almost as if his Father in heaven just swells with, dare we say it, with pride in his Son, who is putting himself forth to take up this work for which he is sent, and as if the Father cannot resist, saying, That's my boy, with whom I am well pleased. Rather poignant thought as you think ahead to the cross, where the Father turns his back on his Son, bearing our sin. Well, in Narnia, in that imaginary place, popped Peter and Susan and Edmund and Lucy, two sons of Adam, two daughters of Eve, four thrones at Care Paravel. A world created in the imagination of C.S. Lewis, but in reality, in a place called Israel, 2,000 years ago, in the midst of the promises made, along comes John the Baptist, and then comes this man from Galilee, man from Nazareth, named Jesus. And he undergoes the baptism here. But that's only a hint of what is to come, because it would not be long before Jesus would identify himself with sinners in a far more graphic and far more painful way when he hung upon the cross, bearing the sins of his people, identifying with the sins of his people, and dying there under the fearsome judgment of his heavenly Father. 
You see, Jesus could have stood with John the Baptist. Could have stood there and said, y'all need to come and repent and confess your sins and be baptized. But he didn't do that. He stood shoulder to shoulders, not with John the baptizer, but with the sinners who came to him in need of cleansing, in need of forgiveness. And on the cross, Jesus stands shoulder to shoulder with you and with me, bearing our sin, dying the death we deserved. So that the Father could say to you and to me, you are my son, you are my daughter, with you in Christ, I am well pleased. Or as Paul would later eloquently put it, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for our Savior. Thank you that Jesus was willing to come down to be here where we are, to put himself in our place and ultimately to suffer what we deserve for our sins, that we might gain what he deserved for his obedience. Father, we thank you that as we stand before you in Christ, whatever we've done, whatever we have not done, in Christ, with us, you are well pleased. And we thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.